BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. It's Friday, September 25th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also support our show at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace, without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off of the original price of Your Deceptive Mind a scientific guide to critical thinking skills from former Inquiring Minds guest Stephen Novella. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. This episode is also sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Today, we're airing part two of our two-part series on de-extinction. Last week, we interviewed evolutionary molecular biologist Beth Shapiro, who wrote a book called How to Clone a Woolly Mammoth, on the science behind de-extinction. And this week, I spoke to journalist M.R. O'Connor. She's the author of a book called Resurrection Science, Conservation, De-Extinction, and the Precarious Future of Wild Things. And I talked to Mora about the ethics and economics of de-extinction and how it compares with conservation. Mora is a graduate of Columbia School of Journalism, and her work has appeared in Foreign Policy, Slate, Salon, The Wall Street Journal, and The Atlantic. This is her first book, but it's so great that I'm sure it is not her last. So that's our interview for today. But first, I wanted to talk a little bit about some things that caught my eye in the news and if you don't mind, I think I'm going to jump right in there. Oh, so you're going to the rage-inducing news yeah. of the week. So uh, here's a little bit of a warning. Uh, this might sound like a little bit of a rant, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to express my displeasure in some things that happened this week. So one thing that caught my eye, as well as pretty much anyone in the U.S. who has eyeballs, was the shocking price hike that Martin Shkreli's company set in place for a drug after he acquired the rights to it. This is a drug called Daraprim, and it's used to treat patients with a condition called toxoplasmosis. It's an infection that really only affects individuals who are immune compromised. So a lot of us actually walk around with the parasite, but we can fight it off unless our immune system is compromised. Isn't this the cat parasite? This is the cat parasite. So it's why pregnant women are told not to change cat litter. Cats are actually the only animals in which the parasite that causes the infection can reproduce. And of course, then that means a cat infected with this parasite will poop out a lot of little eggs of this parasite. And if you change the kitty litter, you can in, you know, infect yourself that way. Now, you can also get it from contaminated food and other sources, but not, say, from another adult who is infected. And most of us who are not immune compromised, just it wouldn't be a big deal. But about a million people in the U.S. are affected by it each year. And this is largely pregnant women, infants, cancer patients, 
AIDS patients, and, you know, anyone else with a compromised immune system. So, you know, people who probably have tons of money to spare, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, Shikrali's pharma company acquired the rights to the drug and then jacked up the price from $13.50 per pill to $750 per per pill overnight. Of course, this hit the news and a firestorm ensued, fed partly by the man's brash Twitter comments and unapologetic appearances on news shows. That is the nicest way of saying that. This guy was just a douchebag on all of these shows. Came out of your mouth, yeah. not mine. Yeah, I'm sticking by it because he just totally like seemed insensitive to the potential plight of a million people that rely on this drug. Yeah, he could use a little media training, that's for sure. And even Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders both promised to change the policies that made this move legal in the ensuing days. So it's already had a, you know, a major effect. Since then, Shkreli has come back and said that his company will drop the price and even help out people who can't afford it. But we don't yet know by how much or how that's going to happen. But if this event actually leads to some policy changes, we might ultimately have to thank the man for shedding light on a loophole that really needs to be closed. Now, you might ask, wait a minute, why aren't the insurance companies who actually have to pay most of this difference up in arms? Well, the answer is that it's just not worth it to them. Only about 13,000 prescriptions for the drug were filled in 2011 before any price hikes had taken effect. And you can imagine that if the price gets higher, even fewer people will actually fill those prescriptions. So it doesn't seem to be a big market. And insurance companies see it as a drop in the, no- in the ocean. It's simply not worth their time to fight it. But let's talk about why this happened and what I think is the bigger issue here that actually is worth our attention. Now, Daraprim is a 62-year-old drug, which means that the patent is long expired. So why does another, doesn't another company just make a generic version? Yeah, in, Indi- in India, the pill's less than a dollar uh, a pill. Right. So here's the problem. The problem is, is that for the drug to be approved as a generic equivalent to Daraprim, it needs to go through rigorous FDA testing. And that's expensive. You need to do a whole bunch of clinical trials. You need to then be able to manufacture the drug. And it's just not worth it if you're only filling fewer than 13,000 prescriptions a year. So what I don't understand is why we don't just allow imports of the drug from places like Canada. <laughs> Yeah, it, it seems to make sense. I mean, we have to ensure safety uh, in terms of the origin of manufacture and whatnot. I mean, especially when we're talking about a pill. But I totally agree. So why don't we do that? I mean, I it, yeah. So so this is this is a question for the FDA: is why can't we have some kind of trade agreements with countries that we trust, uh, in which their rigorous process for vetting drugs can be used as a substitute for some kind of FDA regulations? But that's a question out there. But, you know, you might ask, well, why are we allowing this to happen in the U.S.? And the age-old argument that we get from Big Pharma is that, you know, drugs are expensive because we need to pay for research and development, right? So drug companies spend more money in research and development than other types of companies like Apple or Google, for example. So there's a big price to pay, and a successful drug pays for all the unsuccessful ones that never got to market before uh, the successful one was found. In this case, Shkreli's company didn't do any R&D. He claims that they'll use the money for future R&D. Sure, whatever. I don't... Okay. This seems predatory, uh, for sure, in regards to him. But this... It's only predatory because it was discovered and how much he raised the price. Yeah. I think that this happens quite often. So that's my next point. The much uglier truth is that unlike in every other industry where product prices decrease with time... Amongst drug prices, the prices just go up with time. So my iPhone is worth less today than it was last year, but the drugs I need to take are actually more expensive this year than they were last year. And there's an article that was published in the Wall Street Journal back in April that got, you know, very little attention, much less attention than than what this this case is happening, but actually deserved much more attention because what the Um, article was showing was that drugs for a lot of conditions, like, for example, multiple sclerosis, have gone from, you know, costing a certain amount of money to actually tripling or quadrupling their cost over a number, a a small number of years. So for example, for MS, the cost um, a few years ago was about eight to 11,000 per year. And 
Then um, the treatments currently now, just a few years later, are $60,000 a year, showing an average rise of 20 to 35% per year. And that's the norm. I actually found a list of um, drug price increases for a whole slew of drugs. And looking at this list, Many, many, many of those drugs had their prices hiked at least 30% a year. That means that the price doubles about every three years. So here's where we are. Shikreli's actions are like telling a frog to jump into boiling water. He's not going to do that, right? But if you put a frog into lukewarm water and slowly raise the temperature, it will die from heat before it jumps out. Actually, it won't. Even frogs apparently are smarter than those of us who are continuing to pay these higher and higher drug prices every year. End rant. I think we should realistically cover the economics of pharma in a future show. Because what you pointed out, especially in regards to the raising of prices, like you said, was defended because of the extraordinary cost of R&D. Because when you have a drug that misses, that goes to like phase three tiles, you're talking about millions tens of millions of dollars expended on on that drug. And they would argue that they're using these hit drugs, lack of a better term, as a way of subsidizing those misses, which is just part of the research enterprise. But I think we can dig a lot deeper. Let's revisit. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole story there. And in fact, you know, you know that the market understands that there is a problem here when a couple of tweets, you know, from Hillary Clinton saying that she's going to come in and change policy could cause the biotech index to fall, you know, 4% in one day. That was pretty remarkable. So if <laughs> You, you put it on a nice rant. How about I match you? Got it. So at this point, I think everyone knows the story of Ahmed Mohammed, the 14-year-old student who brought a clock to school and was arrested for it. And uh, I think people know that story well. We don't need to sort of rehash the details of it. Uh, well, it happened in Texas. That's important. I don't think that's actually <laughs> the issue here. Like, honestly, I'm uh, kind of a defender of the teachers that in this case, unlike what? a lot of people. I, I am. I In the sense that uh, the engineering teacher knew what it was and like told him just to, you know, play, keep it in his backpack. And then he finally reached a teacher that was scared of this. And the teacher did what the teacher is supposed to do when they see something sort of out of the norm, reported it to the principal. And then the principal probably didn't do something smart, but, you know, called the police. I put the blame it like for this situation on the police and then the actions of the district afterwards in, in the sense that the police figured out at some point that it wasn't a bomb. So why'd they cuff them? And then, yeah, and I see then where the, you're coming from. The police then, should know better. They, the police They're should the know better. They're the professionals in this and situation. Then, there's no reason to disenfranchise the kid more by just not apologizing to him. That's the human thing to do. Like mistakes can happen, but at least own up to the fact that we put a kid in cuffs unnecessarily. Um, what I wanted to actually relate is, so I've been a 14-year-old kid, brown, that's nerdy in school. I kind of still am that nerdy brown kid, and I'm really proud of it now, and there's so many more outlets for me now. Uh, what I actually think is important, I got sent to detention once for a science project that um, people didn't understand, so I can understand. And I went to an all-white kind of privileged uh, school. Wait, 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 wait. I did. Back up. What was the science project? Well, there was it was a group, um, a science project that was like a sort of a circuit experiment. And they thought we were trying to create something to, to cause an electrical short and electrocute somebody. Um, <laughs> but we weren't. Like, we were actually trying to bypass some of the safeties on the, on the breadboard. Uh, and I got detention for it. And, and it was totally wrong from a scientific standpoint. Like, we were not happy with the safety implications that was put on it. And I got sent to detention. And I think there was some part of that was that people were a little bit scared of me because I was quiet, awkward, dirty kid. Uh, still kind of am. But the overarching point to me is, uh, that I wanted to make is that I love the outpouring of support, the unity that showed up on uh, in a lot of ways. There are tens of millions of Ahmeds out there, uh, brown kids, white kids, kids of all stripes who are deeply curious and interested and don't feel supported by the system they're in and are treated as suspicious. I've been treated like that. And I think the important point is that what really made a difference to that kid, and you can see that today, is the outpouring of support from professionals in the space relating how much 
they related to that experience, that we've all had that kind of experience and their offers of mentor and support. So if there's one thing that could really make a difference in, in making this kind of stuff go away, it's when professional scientists and engineers are really engaged with students at school sites, particularly where the system is not in place for them to succeed. But not only that, I mean, President Obama came out and was like, come to the White House. Yeah. And I mean, that's awesome. He's going to do that for one kid. And, and the president deserves a lot for what he's done in terms of in introducing a science fair and a maker fair at the White House. But it's still one kid. There's millions like him out there. And this should serve as a call to action for us to do more as a community rather than celebrate the our our redemption of, of this one child. Absolutely. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with M.R. O'Connor. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from on topics ranging from politics to science to classics. It lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. And Audible is offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. You just have to go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds and pick one of their 150,000 titles to download for free. Some great options based on shows that we've just done in the last little while is Beth Shapiro's book, How to Clone a Mammoth, The Science of De-Extinction, or Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity by our recent guest, Steve Silberman. You can download one of these for free right now by going to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. This episode is also sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses has been in production for over 25 years and offers engaging lectures by top professors who are experts in their field. One course you could check out is Your Deceptive Mind, a scientific guide to critical thinking skills from former Inquiring Minds guest and neurologist at Yale University School of Medicine, Stephen Novella. This course helps you to understand the neuroscience behind how our thinking works and what can go wrong. It explains the fundamental skills behind logic, reasoning, and argumentation, as well as how to avoid common pitfalls and errors in thinking, such as logical fallacies and biases, and how to distinguish good science from pseudoscience. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving a special offer to our listeners. Order Your Deceptive Mind, a scientific guide to critical thinking skills, and get 80% off the original price. But this 80% off savings is only available for a limited time. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Indian Summers, the new masterpiece series on PBS. Set in India in 1932, during the twilight of British rule, it's a twist on the period drama, providing a window into both British and Indian experiences during this time. Indian Summers features an international cast of Indian, British, and Pakistani actors, including Julie Walters, Nikesh Patel, and Henry Lloyd Hughes. It's set in the similar region near the Himalayas, where the British would relocate during the summer to work and socialize. While the British in India are living a life of privilege, the Indian people are beginning to rise up with calls for independence from British rule. It features complex plot lines that touch on politics, class, romance, and the rise of a nation. This nine-part series premieres Sunday, September 27th at 9, 8 central on Masterpiece on PBS. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, M.R. O'Connor. Thanks so much. I wanted to start off by asking you how you got into this topic to begin with. What sparked your interest in de-extinction and this idea that we might be able to bring back extinct species? I started not necessarily with de-extinction, but with a conservation uh, story. I was a graduate student in New York City. I was taking a class called Covering Ideas, and I became really interested in this idea that uh, in order to save wildlife, scientists were having to bring um, species in from their habitats and keep them in arcs, in literal um, arcs, safe places, in order to keep them from going extinct. And uh, I found an example of this really close by at the Bronx Zoo, uh, where this incredibly rare species called the Kihansi spray toad was being kept in a biosecure facility and it was one of two populations uh, left in the world and they had actually gone extinct in the wild. And I do want to talk a lot about that particular toad um, because that was one of my favorite stories in your book. But I also wanted to turn back to 
in the introduction in your book, you talk a little bit about how when you were growing up, there was a big push towards, you know, understanding the the effect that we have on species and that we are in this, you know, big mass extinction period. And so tell me a little bit about sort of what, how you felt about our kind of, I, I would say, duty to um, prevent species from going extinct or even bring back those that we've already sent the wrong way. Sure. I, you know, I don't think I grew up with a particularly environmentally focused education, but I do clearly remember sort of the moment in middle school that I became aware of this idea of a sixth extinction. And I think, you know, um, childhood impressions can be very powerful. And this idea was incredibly overwhelming to me. And I think I did have a sort of uh, maybe natural interest um, in it. I had read Douglas Adams' um, brilliant book, Last Chance to See, which is the story of him going all over the world to um, look at animals that were threatened with extinction. Um, I think I read that when I was 14. That made a big impression. Um, you know, later when I was a sophomore in, in high school, I actually took a extension course at a university and rainforest conservation ecology, and I had no idea what I was doing, but I think I did have a kind of natural pro proclivity towards um, towards this topic. But um, at the same time, I think this was really becoming, coming into people's awareness at large. This was something that the media was paying more attention to, and there was sort of this growing feeling and sense that, you know, we are in trouble uh, and that the impact that we're ha having on the natural landscape is, you know, occurring faster than many of us can really comprehend or wrap our minds around. And one thing that you mentioned very early on in your book that really couldn't sort of made me sit up and, and listen is this idea that maybe we don't really understand what it means to be in a sixth extinction. So there are some numbers that get thrown around by scientists and, and the media um, that sound really scary. You know, these num the number of species that are going extinct every year and every day and so forth. And you suggested that maybe those numbers aren't actually an accurate reflection of what's going on. Yeah, I think I'm sort of swimming into a very contentious debate. But I mean, the thing, you know, I think some of us would hear is things like by the time you finish this sentence, three species will have gone extinct. And and in the 90s, it seemed particularly there was a lot of these prophecies of, you know, the hundreds of thousands of species that were going to be extinct by the year 2000. And what we've seen is that um, that's not necessarily what's happened. I don't think anyone's ruling out that um, the rate of extinction is increased. Um, but a conservative estimate of that rate is now maybe 100 times more than the background rate, not the 10,000 times the background rate that we heard. Nonetheless, um, you know, I think it would be wrong to look at that, um, those kinds of newer and perhaps more refined estimates and think uh, we're in the clear because even though the International Union for Conservation of Nature says, uh, you know, there's 900 species that have gone extinct in the last 500, there's many hundreds more that are possibly extinct and there's many, many thousands more that are threatened um, and critically endangered. And those stories um, of species on the brink were sort of what begin to fascinate me and that at least right now that seems to be more what uh, we're facing with the sixth extinction not necessarily the oblivion but the sort of um, life support that species are on and how we then have to intervene. And a great story to illustrate that for our listeners is the spray toad story. So tell us about the spray toads um, you know where they are what what, what how, you know so their, their whole sort of this, this idea that um, there's this species now that, you know, whose story is very much tied not only to, you know, what we've been doing and, and where they evolved, but also the local politics in that region. So tell us the story of the toads. Sure. So the spray toad, you know, if you go online and you Google a picture of this, you'd sort of be surprised. It's not one of these brilliant colored rainforests, uh, tree frogs that oh, we love so much. It's really sort of an almost normal looking 
tiny little frog. Um, what's really spectacular about it and special about it is that it only existed in a single waterfall in southern Tanzania. It lived in this sort of microclimate, about two hectares of um, the spray zone created by this massive and very powerful waterfall. And um, that waterfall was sort of looked at as a potential hydroelectric site um, since the, I think it was the even 1980s. And when they started to go ahead with building this um, fall, it was partially funded by the World Bank and other development agencies. Um, and it was going to provide a third of electricity for Tanzanians, which is a country that's really starved for electricity and has very high rates of poverty. They actually discovered the Kehansi spray toad um, when they were almost finished with the dam. And, uh, and when they did, it obviously created a huge amount of uh, conflict and sort of a potential public relations nightmare for the World Bank. And so um, what you had was a conservation biologist recommending that they take an insurance policy of toads out of this gorge. And they took 500 uh, toads to the Bronx and um, Toledo. But what happened in the meantime is the toads were struck by this uh, chytrid fungus that's affecting so many populations of frogs around the world. And so that captive population became the last population in the world. And they actually shrunk to about 72 individuals before rebounding. So that was the genetic snapshot of the species. One of the things that really struck me about this story, though, is how quickly you can get a sense of the conflict between the local people who don't have, a lot of them, electricity, who really want the jobs that are created by the building of this dam, who really need this, um, and then this huge effort to save this toad. And so you have essentially this moral dilemma uh, playing out right in front of you. So tell us a little bit about how the locals were responding to um, this big, huge effort to save these toads. There was some, um, I think, suspicion on the part of the Tanzanian government and certain officials that the interest in the toad was economic, that perhaps there was some pharmaceutical value to the species, and they initially didn't want to lose control of it for that reason. So there was a lot of resistance to bringing the toad into America. But there was also this sort of disbelief that um, there was this much concern and resources being given to the conservation of a species that really had almost zero utilitarian value to anybody. Um, and what I think is amazing to me about the county spray toad story is that at its core, like you said, there's this moral conflict. It's a it's an ethically um, intractable problem where no one is going to say a toad is more important than you know the the right of Tanzanians to have electricity. Whereas no one is going to also say um, it's okay to let this toad go extinct. And so in the story, you have a sort of crystallized version of a lot of other conservation conflicts that are happening around the world. And, and that to me um, was really illuminating. I think it kind of, I came to it a bit naive and I, I really uh, saw a lot um, of the, you know, this complexity that I wasn't aware of before. So you did a wonderful job describing the microclimate uh, of this waterfall that these toads essentially were adapted for. And that's why they don't live anywhere else. I mean, it's this, you know, hugely powerful waterfall that just can, you know, keeps them wet at all times. And it's cold in the middle of this African country where it's usually very hot. And so these frogs hadn't even been discovered until they put this dam together. And we don't know that there weren't local people that knew that they existed, but certainly they weren't documented in any way. And yet we've now spent a lot of money to protect them. And this brings me to this idea that protecting species, de-extinction even, and in some some cases, even conservation biology is kind of a high class problem, and that there is a sort of privilege divide that you know here we are we're in New York in the Flatiron Building, you know talking about the fact that we want to bring back species from extinction or we want to save the species that are that are about to go extinct, and 
you know, we're really fortunate to be where we are. So can you talk a little bit about how you've sort of struggled with this idea that even just conserving a species is a high class problem? Yeah, I think one of the things that um, I started to become aware of when I went to Tanzania was, you know, this unfortunate sort of situation where it was so often a lot of um, white and Western biologists who were advising and implementing these conservation policies in developing countries. And you know, one of the things, as you said, we're sitting here in New York City, and when New York City was sort of becoming, you know, this amazing economic hub, you know, in the 18th and 19th centuries, it's, people weren't even, um, were not only not aware that extinction was possible, but probably didn't really care that much. And so the development of our of our own um, sort of economies and and countries has really benefited from a lack of conservation awareness. And what is really, um, I think, happening in, in many places around the world today is this um, development agenda, but now in conflict with this awareness that, no, actually, we need to be protecting these ecosystems. Um, we need to be protecting these species and um, there's just an enormous amount of conflict that also, unfortunately, not in all cases, I mean, I certainly don't want to draw too broad of strokes here, but can fall along racial lines. And I think, you know, no one is more aware of that than sort of Tanzanians who are on the other end of um, you know, the other side of these sorts of um, policymaking and, you know, conf and controversies. And the same kind of divide is somewhat echoed between the conservation biologists who you kind of describe as the front line on the war against extinction versus the people who are in the ivory tower studying de-extinction in the lab, bringing back animals in that sense. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you perceive the whether there still is conflict between you know the con conservation biologists and the people who are working more on the de-extinction side? Have they come together? Is there you know how are they? How is the relationship between those two fields developing? So one thing is that de-extinction, in a certain sense, is you know the technology has been in development but this idea that it could be applied um to de-extinction or even some kind of conservation strategy is relatively new so i think conservation biologists have really written this off as um you know one person really respected conservationist told me this is just an offensive conversation that we're even talking about de-extinction it's so far removed from the realities of what's happening on the ground and trying to mitigate current extinction crises. And I think there's just a lot of cynicism that um, this is a bid for media attention because clearly the public really finds it to be fascinating. Um, you know, it's just, it's hard not to be sort of tantalized by the idea of seeing resurrected animals. It's, it's an amazing possibility. But for conservation biologists, as far as I, you know, could tell through my interviews, um, this has not been readily accepted or, or taken very seriously as an actual conservation strategy, and I think for, for good reason. So what do you think that reason is? Well, I think one reason um, that's and point that's been made is that when we're talking about de-extinction, there could be a misperception that what is actually being resurrected is the original species. And that's absolutely not the case. It's what we're talking about is genetically engineering re related and living um, species to the extinct species and reintroducing a genetically modified organism that we cannot really say for sure will behave in the way of the original species or that will even have a habitat in which to to live. And so um, I think that's a really important point. You know, I think conservation biologists, um, you know, if I can just speak broadly, are aware of that and really take issue with the idea that these are original species and that we really know the full consequences of bringing them back. 
And yet, in a way, conservation biologists are already using a technique that's similar. So, for example, in the case of the spray toads, they are continuing to bump up the population with toads from ca captivity, which they even admit are not the same. You've got a 50th generation spray toad who's essentially, you know, 50 generations have been brought up in the Bronx Zoo, and now you're sending them to Tanzania, and they don't behave the same way. You know, they don't, natural selection we know now can act um, you know, in, in, a, in a smaller number of generations than we used to think. So how do they reconcile, you know, is, the, is there a, really a difference between bringing back or, or adding to a population animals from, that were bred and, and raised in, in captivity versus bringing in an animal who, you know, maybe was <laughs> had some genetic engineering happening as opposed to having been bred for 50 generations? Right, that's a... It's a great question and sort of a, in some ways, a difficult question to answer. Um, but I would say that the difference between those strategies is that at least in the case of the Kehansi spray toad or other captive bred animals, even if they have been changed by the strategies taken to save them, there is still an uninterrupted lineage between the original species and um and the species that's being reintroduced. So there's a kind of continuity there. And you're right. I think that we now know that evolution takes place much faster than anyone really thought a hundred years ago. And we know it can take place in generations and on sort of contemporary timescales. And so a lot of conservation strategies are now beginning to be appreciated as not just preserving a species, but actually can impact the species. But I would say that I guess it's a matter of scale, um, of, of change and manipulation and intervention between a captive breeding population and a de-extinction. And that the thing that's sort of tragic and also very interesting for me to think about when it comes to the sixth extinction is that it's basically this kind of triage situation where there's no good, these are all approaches of last resort. You know, they're all sort of worst case scenario approaches. And so there's never really, you know, a, a good way to do any of this. It's sort of what's the least bad. And um, that's kind of, I think, the reality that most conservation biologists are working in. That kind of brings up this second part of um, the story that you were telling about the toads, which is that, you know, their, their uh, habitat is tiny. In fact, you use a wonderful word in the book, evolutionary whimsy, right? Is that, <laughs> that they evolved in this like little, tiny, very specific habitat. But of course, the vast majority of species, I think, that have gone extinct, I mean, their habitats are completely changed too and you know or at least highly restricted much smaller than they used to be so now we have this problem of even if we bring back a species even if we keep a species alive in captivity what's the point if there's nowhere to ever let them go in the wild so how are the scientists dealing with this question of you know yes it sounds very noble to preserve this species but you know, we wouldn't raise a whole bunch of human babies <laughs> in an environment if, in which we knew that we'd always have to keep them, you know, in, a, in an institution or, you know, we would never do that. We would think that was completely amoral. And yet we, were, we are doing that with other species. Well, one of the interesting things with some de-extinction cases is this possibility that they could help bring back habitats that have been long gone. So with the woolly mammoth, I believe there's been some talk that they could sort of, um, I, I probably am saying this wrong, or um, but bringing back, I think, grassland, tundra, you know, that sort of these Pleistocene um, environments that have sort of disappeared. So that's kind of interesting. You know, could the passenger pigeon... Um, it's not just about bringing back birds, but could they actually be helping to reinvigorate the forest and sort of bring um, health back to North American forests? You know, that's that's interesting. And I think so far that seems to be the most um, persuasive and, you know, compelling argument for specific de-extinctions. But really, I think it has yet to be answered that, you know, 
we can barely live with um, species that are alive today and barely figure out how to give them the space that they need in order to thrive. And so why are we talking about um, bringing back species that don't exist anymore? That's something that hasn't been fully answered. One of the uh, cases in the book is the Florida panther, and that's a great example, um, I think, of how complicated it is, uh, even when you have a conservation success story, to be living alongside and tolerating species that are, are threatened. So there's 30 when they first discovered this remnant population in southern Florida. Today, there's maybe as many as 180. But the, it's a, there uh, so many people in southern Florida are intolerant of their success. Um, and so, you know, that's really, really the rub is even if we can be successful conserving species, um, we seem to be resistant towards actually making sacrifices or changing our own behavior in order to give them what they really need. So I think you've brought up a really compelling argument for how we should think about choosing the kinds of species that either we bring back from extinction or that we conserve and you know breed in captivity until we can release them. And it's this notion that the species themselves can change the environment to make it more habitable for them and for the other species that are there. So you gave the example of the woolly mammoth, and I, you know, I think you're right. That's one of the arguments that I keep hearing, that if you bring back these um, mammoths, especially in that part of Siberia where there's already, you know, land that's been bought and, and supposedly um, sort of set aside for that purpose, that there will be a lot of environmental benefits, that they will, you know, recreate um, these grasslands, that they might even slow global warming uh, because of sort of the way that, that they interact with their environment. And I've heard the same argument for a um, mammal in grasslands and, you know, in the prairies parts of North America where, you know, when these, when these animals were hunted and, and gone away, you know, they actually created a sort of dust bowl situation. So is that, is that the direction we should be heading in terms of figuring out which species we should be saving? Um, or do you think that there is a different argument uh, that we should be considering when making those kinds of decisions? Well, I hadn't heard the global warming component of the woolly, woolly mammoth de-extinction. So that's really interesting. I'm a little bit skeptical, um, but I am not totally familiar with the science. So it may very well be um, that that is one argument for their de-extinction. And that would be very compelling. Um, you know, I think when we're talking about which candidates to choose for de-extinction, there's so many uh, questions. I mean, I certainly think the least compelling is just that it would be really cool to see um, a, you know, thylacine uh, or a Carolina parakeet. I mean, to me, that seems, you know, John Wallum wrote this book, Wild Ones, which is sort of about the performative aspects of conservation. And I think, in that sense, there's nothing more performative than de-extinction. It literally doesn't matter to these species whether they're alive because they're already dead. And, you know, it's really this argument that it's a kind of form of ecological justice. That's all about our feelings. You know, um, you could say maybe it matters to the environment whether these species come back or not, but that's a very weird sort of philosophically fraught, I think, argument. Um, but, you know, it is interesting in the case of the passenger pigeon, um, there's sort of talk, there has been talk of, you know, are Lyme disease levels um, a byproduct of passenger pigeon uh, extinction? You know, there's sort of arguments like that that I think are compelling, but certainly we would have to, I think, be very rigorous of our own motivations and the science before deciding to bring any of these animals back. I think, the, to me, the worst outcome of being able to achieve this technologically would be to fill a zoo. I, I, you know, I think, but that could very well be one of the, you know, strongest possibilities. We don't really know. And 
you know, I loved one of the quotes that you uh, have in your book of Stephen Jay Gould, and I don't remember the exact wording, but it's something along the lines of, look, when we get to a point where people actually want to save the worms and, you know, the other sort of not so cute species, then we've really hit some kind of moral high ground. Um, and so, you know, there are, what, some 6,000 species of frogs out there, um, but frogs are already a lot cuter than worms and cockroaches and, you know, other insects. And so a lot of this does seem to me it's very much driven by um, eliciting reactions in the general population of humans. So, you know, the idea of a baby woolly mammoth is so cute that a lot of us would, you know, think, well, that's got to be a good thing. Um, so you know, what, what is the sense of, um, you know, it, is there, is there a set of, I don't know, ethical guidelines that either conservation biologists or individuals in sort of molecular evolutionary geneticists, um, like Beth Shapiro are, are starting to develop and follow that will help us sort of make these kinds of decisions and, and not just go with, you know, the, the furry, fuzzy, you know, feelings of towards these animals? Well, I think I saw over the course of um, writing the book and, and writing particularly about the passenger pigeon effort, I saw a kind of shift in emphasis on the way they were approaching this project. So initially what um, I, I heard a lot of was this ecological justice argument that because humans caused these extinctions, we have this obligation to bring them back and, and sort of begin what um, was being described as this non-tragic relationship to nature, um, to bring positive conservation stories into the world. Um, and then, you know, I, I started to hear a bit a bit of a shift where the emphasis was not on this on ecological justice, but on what would the impact actually be on North American forests if passenger pigeons were were resurrected. And testing of hypotheses, what if humans could actually just fulfill that role? Does that mean that then it's it's just a moot endeavor and we don't actually need to bring passenger pigeons back? Um, what if they brought band-tailed pigeons into eastern uh, North American forests, you know, from the West? Would that fulfill this role that they hope passenger pigeons might fulfill? So there seemed to be a kind of development of um, the science behind testing these ideas that I think is is great and would probably need to happen for all candidate species. But to me, you know, and I say this as a journalist, not as a trained scientist, but just my own personal opinion, to me, the real test for candidate species for de-extinction, I think, is does it sort of address the roots of this crisis that we are facing collectively, you know, this sixth extinction? And um, I think the reason for that is we like to kind of put our faith in these technological fixes. You know, we like to think that there is this solution that sort of shows how, how great we are at doing this. But, um, you know, in most cases that I talked to, to individuals about and learned about for this book, the solution really had to do with changing human behavior. And so if these technological fixes are going to allow us to avoid doing that, then I don't really see them as actual solutions. I see them as sort of a lot of hope, you know, and uh, a lot of um, maybe misplaced uh, faith. So just by setting up the argument that way, it made me wonder whether the, one of the best things that can come out of de-extinction science is this focus on actually trying to solve, you know, think outside the box to solve these problems, that maybe conservation biologists were a little bit fixed in terms of how they were thinking about, you know, saving these species and so forth. But, you know, just the idea that you mentioned, bringing birds from another part of the world, and you know, that's a much easier fix, much less expensive, I would think, than bringing back a, a, an extinct species. And so that's exciting that maybe this is having a fundamental shift in the way that conservation biologists are thinking about the problem, which could lead to more effective solutions. But I think there's also a other side of de-extinction that I would like to ask you a little bit about, and you do have a chapter on this, which is what does it mean for humanity? So this notion that 
you know, is a Neanderthal species something that we should be bringing back? And what does that mean for how we think about our own species and the extent to which we should be using genetic engineering to manipulate future generations of us? Yeah, I think just to go back to something that you said in the lead up to that question, one of the reasons why it may be that conservation biologists haven't been thinking outside of the box in the way that you just described is because of this very um, important ethic and conservation that has to do with separating wilderness and humans and not wanting to manipulate or intervene or to keep sacred that that idea. And um, it may be that technology can help us, but not in the ways that we expect. So I wrote um, a story recently about a, a biomedical researcher who thinks that he he's created a company that could use uh, stem cell technology to produce on a mass level artificial rhino horn that then could sort of wipe out the demand in in um, for poaching in Africa. So, you know, that's one sort of out, one of those outside the box examples that I think is really fascinating. And, um, you know, the problem is, I think that when we're talking about this idea of de-extincting Neanderthals and, um, and other species, it's sort of, you know, where you know, where is the limit and where is the ethical framework that's going to inform our technological power? And what will the checks be on, on that power? And I think that one of the checks on our sort of perhaps technological hubris and this idea that we can solve all of these problems with our technological mastery is this respect and humility towards nature that is one of the core elements of the conservation ethic. You know, there's this sort of idea, well, that's just a false dichotomy between wilderness and humans. And, you know, it's not that what humans do is unnatural. We're part of the environment. But that doesn't mean that we can then just change everything, geoengineer everything, you know, just because I think we are living at this time, you know, it's being called the Anthropocene my opinion, at least, is that doesn't give us a blank check to sort of disregard the fundamentals of, you know, what's informed the conservation movement up till now. Yeah. And I think that that's something that we also feel, um, or at least a lot of us feel is true about our own species, right? Is that the, you, you only want to mess with so much, if, either because we don't know the consequences or that there is, you know, still some mystery there that we want to continue to preserve. So on that note, I want to remind our listeners um, that uh, uh, Mora's book, Resurrection Science, Conservation, De-Extinction, and the Precarious Future of Wild Things is available at booksellers everywhere. And Mora, I want to thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. That was a great interview, but I am deeply confused. Uh, last week, Beth was full of optimism and hope around what the technology represents. And now we have this kind of cautious tale, and I, I would say it was kind of pessimistic from MR on the prospect of this actually being a, a useful technology in conservation. Yeah, I have to say that was probably the most surprising thing, both in her book and in the interview that I had not expected when I had first, you know, read the blurb and it got me interested about, you know, interviewing her and talking to her. And, uh, uh, you know, but I think it's really important to sort of think about this, like, what is even the point of de-extinction, if we can't get our conservation together? Right. And, and that's the thing that I felt was really important to highlight is that, you know, are we just barking up the wrong tree? And it sounds like there is a whole rift in the scientific community with respect to how we should move forward in terms of you know, respecting Mother Nature and these other species. So, you know, I think that I think that that rift is going to need to be bridged if we're able to really come to some kind of a consensus as to how we should approach the whole de-extinction thing. So the way I heard the rift was, hey, there's some like really kind of simplistic, important priorities that we should place way, way ahead of de-extinction. 
if we're really talking about conservation right now. Is that the way you heard it as well? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the way I heard it. And also that, you know, de-extinction is all fine and nice in the ivory tower. But when you come down to the front lines, you know, even if you do manage to bring back a couple of samples of a particular species, we know it's going to be different. You know, it, it will have different you know, a lot of differences between the original species. But what are you going to do then? It's sort of like this, you know, it's, it's almost this idea of like, you can't give someone a puppy and then not tell them how to care for it. I actually really like your question on the, the cute animal question, because I do feel like we're talking about this uh, in a very discriminatory way. Uh, Like, because the technology is really about utilizing a similar species as a way of bringing back something extinct. Bacteria, virus, they get no love in this. And there's probably more of them that have gone extinct than ever before. We're putting a priority on on mammals and other large creatures, at least in the discussion right now. For sure in the discussion. But I also wonder if we aren't in some ways, you know, affecting the evolution of bacteria and viruses in a much more direct way all the time. So, you know, in some ways, are we actually, you know, as a human species, you know, making a dent into to those, into that, whatever is it, genera? <laughs> I don't even know. That, that, that part of fauna um, already. If, the, if there's one thing I take away uh, about this, I've known, we've talked about the mass extinction, the sixth mass extinction many times on this show. This makes me sit up a little bit more. When we're talking about going to such lengths to counteract the, le- the degree and acceleration of the extinction age that we're in right now, I think that makes me take note of how important and uh, unbelievably dramatic of a change we're going through in terms of this planet. But I also want to underscore something that she said that maybe got lost at the beginning of the interview, but was made much more clear in her book, which is that the sixth extension actually hasn't come to fruition the way it was predicted. And the number of species that are going extinct is a much, the species are going extinct at a much smaller rate than previously thought like orders of magnitude smaller. And sure, that might be because we're able to keep a small amount of them alive. And so we can't really call them extinct if there's a pair of them in a particular zoo, but it's not a viable species anymore, so and so forth. But it still begs the question then that if that's the case, isn't conservation the better way to go about it? Oh, those poor bacteria that get discriminated against. No (laughs) conservation efforts for them. And the worms. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our new Patreon campaign, which we launched a few weeks ago, with special thanks to Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and Herring Chang. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. You can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook, Yep, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of Your Deceptive Mind, a scientific guide to critical thinking skills from former Inquiring Minds guest Stephen Novella. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Indian Summers, the new masterpiece series on PBS. Set in India in 1932, during the twilight of British rule, it's a twist on the period drama providing a window into both British and Indian experiences during this time. While the British in India are living a life of privilege, the Indian people are beginning to rise up with calls for independence from British rule. It features complex plot lines that touch on politics, class, romance, and the rise of a nation. This nine-part series premieres Sunday, September 27th at 9, 8 central on Masterpiece on PBS. 
Inquiring Minds is produced by clockmaker Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, City Lab, Medium, and The Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Your spring is about to get a lot more power with the Home Depot. Get gas-like power from mowing, trimming, and blowing with the Ryobi 18-volt 1 Plus system starting at just $89. Mowing power that can take on a third of an acre with one charge. Trimming power with up to two hours of runtime. And blowing power with 110 miles per hour of clearing force. All on one interchangeable battery. Get cordless gas-like power for the entire lawn with the Ryobi 18-volt 1 Plus system. Only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.